0: Well, if you have a Bible with you, would you open to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, as we continue to study through uh, Paul's amazing letter. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, I think it's page 977. Well, we have been studying the book of Ephesians for a couple of months here at Christ Community Church, and it is an amazing book. Uh, Amazing because Ephesians covers macro life issues you recall that it started uh, with God choosing a people from eternity past unto himself talks about how God in Christ broke into history and time this amazing work of Christ on the cross with global and eternal significance for all humanity and Paul even writes about how that action affects our lives today This amazing work that Christ did in teaching humanity and making it possible that no longer was humanity fragmented and alienated from God and one another, but can be made, as chapter two taught us, one new humanity in Christ. And this amazing thing that we learn in chapter three, the church, is a display of this marvelous plan of God from ages past created through the gospel to reveal the wisdom of God throughout all creation. Now, after laying this foundation down in chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul launched in chapters 4 and goes on to 5 and 6 about talking about how we live in light of these realities. Paul's expressing that there's this new society that's been made out of a new humanity that has these new standards, this diverse community that shares a unique unity because it's grounded in the Trinity of God himself, and it has major ramifications for the way we live, especially contrasted with what we were before, and especially for the Ephesians, their pagan lifestyles, and how they're radically different now. And in keeping with Paul's pattern is this constant reminder. Paul pushes ideas forward and reminds the Ephesians what they once were so that they can fully appreciate what's coming next. You know, that, that right there in and of itself is an, an application for us as Christians, the need to be constantly reminded. Right? That's one of the reasons we gather every Sunday. Because you and I both need to be reminded of the things that matter most. If you're like me, you're often distracted the most by things that matter least from the things that matter most in life, and so we need reminders, things in our lives, rhythms of life that put us back, recalibrate us, and remember again what's really important. What else is a celebration of Mother's Day than a simple reminder, right? You're you're not all of a sudden going to value mom today. It is simply a day set apart to remind us of the importance of mothers in our lives, And so we see Paul constantly doing this, progressing new ideas forward about this new work of Christ, and then reminding the believers of what they were apart from that. We see that clearly in chapter 2. We see that again this morning. So as Paul has broken into chapter 4 about these new standards we are to live, he pauses and again pulls back to remind these Ephesians, and by application us, what it used to be like. Not so that we are strapped with guilt because of our past, by any means no, so that we are filled with gratitude for what God is doing now. And We just sang this song, it's just so amazing. It was, uh, maybe the operator back there uh, can get it. What was the song? It was uh, Christ Can Be, what was that one by Paul Belosh Adam that we just sang? All I have, get those lyrics back up there real quick if we can. This is a complete uh, divergence from my notes. But as I was singing it, I thought, there it is. That's exactly what we talk about. So there it is. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. Next slide. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. If you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Hallelujah. There's the core. Hallelujah. There's the perfect ending. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Here's the thing. God, we just sang my sermon I, we could, I could just end right now, and if you sang that and you were focused on the words, that's exactly the sermon today. So let's celebrate Mother's Day early. Let's get to the restaurants. We're done. <laughs> you know no pastor gives up an opportunity to talk. My point is this. We gather and we were reminded, but it's so easy to gather, sing that, and just kind of go, hey, catchy tune. Hey, guitar sounds a little out of tune. Or, What's, I like what Adam's wearing. We get all distracted from the amazing things we just sang. And if you can remember those lists, that slide that was just up there, and as we're reading this passage, you can say, that's exactly what the, that, the, what we sang was Ephesians 4, 17 to 32, in so many ways. Um, so the, I'm just going to let you guys know back there, I'm completely jumping all over the place, so just hang with me. Let me read our passage, ask the Lord to bless the teaching of His Word, and let's jump in. Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 17, Paul writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard Him, about Him, and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk out of your mouths, but only such that is good for the building up of the body, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we have literally sung the gospel message. We have already prayed the gospel message. We have experienced that together this morning, and your blessing to us is being able to hear from your word. Father, would you help this frail and distracted preacher communicate the message that you intend to be edifying to the body this morning? You are gracious and kind. We pray that we would experience that in real tangible ways as you continue to change and transform our lives for your glory and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name amen. So Paul is reminding them not to work as the Gentiles did, and he has these vivid describers. How did the Gentiles live? How did they once live? How did we once live? And he says, in the futility of your minds. And verse 17 to 19 is this amazing passage that's so, it's a vivid description of a life completely bankrupt of the things of God. And now, Paul isn't saying that every Gentile everywhere is always living this way, as if to say that they are constantly as bad as they possibly could all the time. That's not the case. What Paul is describing is the general trajectory of a life that is lights out to the things of God. That if you strip away all the moral civilities that we've inculturated in ourselves, at the end of the day, this is the kind of heart you're going to find. It's futile. It's darkened. It's alienated from the life that is in God. And look at verse 18. He says that they are darkened in their understanding. And, and, and the phrase that follows that explains what that means to be darkened in your understanding. To be darkened in your understanding means to be alienated from the life that's in God. Why were they this way, though? Why were the Gentiles darkened and alienated from the life that is in God? Paul tells us. He says it in verse 18. You can see his his pattern as one leads to the next, leads to the next, leads to the next. They are darkened in their understanding. That is to say, alienated from the life that's in God because of the ignorance that's in them. But how did this ignorance get into them that led to this alienation and darkness? Well, he says it again due to the hardness that's in their hearts. So it starts with a hardened heart. A heart that says, I don't care about the things of God. I'm going to live my life my way. I do my own thing. I ca- I'm the captain of my own ship. I do my own thing. That hardened heart leads to an ignorance because by definition, it's not open to input anywhere else. It's its own uh, final court of arbitration. And that ignorance led them to be alienated from the life that's in God. That's why having a hard heart is so dangerous. Having a hardened heart leads to spiritual death. We see it right here. One thing leads to the next thing and leads to the next thing. And Paul says, don't live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. This is what it all looks like. Remember, you were once one of those who lived that way. We just sang that in that song. You Remember that song, that that word? I don't remember the, the exact phrase, but I was deceived, not knowing what I was doing. Hell bound, running after my desires. That's what Paul is saying here. But notice where it ends, and it's very scary. In verse 19, all of this happening, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality greedy to practice every kind of impurity now if you're a note taker we don't have time to get into it this morning but i want you to write romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 32 down and what you're going to see is you get ephesians 4 17 to 19 and you're going to see the exact same progression that paul is detailing in romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 32 This parallel progression of a hardening heart leading to ignorance and darkness and the futility of mind that leads to a lifestyle that's never satisfied. You know, C.S. Lewis, uh, I'm on a C.S. Lewis kick right now. He said something so profound that when you find the things of life, this is what he writes, when you find that the things of this life cannot fill you up, it should serve as a reminder that you are not made for the things of this life so simple but so profound. When you find that the things of this life never satisfy you, it should remind you that you were not meant to be satisfied by the things of this life. But yet so often before a man or a woman, as we just sang, has been enlightened by Christ's light and truth, we don't grasp that truth. I mean, our minds are darkened, right? After all, our thinking was futile, and so what we do is we try to fill ourselves up. With, with one kind of pleasure after another pleasure that actually becomes a vice, and we move on from one vice to the next vice, thinking that that's going to be the thing that gives us fulfillment and meaning. That's why Paul says they were greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Have you noticed along with me that there has been an explosion of addictive disorders in our culture? Right Before it was just maybe one or two. So you had alcohol and you had drugs and then maybe a more progressive one was gambling. But now you've got, you've got internet addiction. You've got pornography addiction. You've got video game addiction. You have addiction to other people. It goes and goes and goes. What's going on? What's going on, I believe, is that our society is understanding the biblical truths written about here, that when your mind is in futile, your your mind is darkened, and your heart's hardened to the things of God, you're no longer getting life from Him because you were alienated from it, but because we were made to have life, you're seeking life in other things. But like we sang, those things betray us, and they don't give us life because we're alienated from the life of God. But we know we were made for life. We look for life in other things that only betray us. And so the worst case scenario of this is addictions. What is an addiction other than someone saying, I need this thing to give me my life. And if I don't get this thing, my life is over. And I will do whatever it takes to have that life. But yet, it didn't start that way. It didn't start in that destructive pattern. It started by someone saying, this thing, I'm going to draw my meaning, my sense of fulfillment, my life from this. They voluntarily entered into it. And then it became their slave master. In the best case scenario how we see this is this this perpetual pursuit of an ever-seeding horizon of pleasure and fulfillment. And so we go from one hobby to the next hobby to one social group to the next social group, always looking for life that these things could give us, but never realizing that life was never intended to be gotten from those things. And so Paul says, don't be living like that. It's kind of like people who pour coffee into their gas tank and wonder why the car doesn't go, right? Coffee is not meant to be fueling your car. Why did God make coffee? It's to keep you awake at church services, <laughs> right? Well, at least not. You guys are okay. It's the 9 a.m. that really needs that. But, but the point is, you don't use things that weren't made for their purposes, but Paul is saying that's the futility of the mind that characterizes the Gentile life, that these Ephesians and that we once were. He says, don't live that way. You don't, that's the way you used to live. Now, let's talk about how you live now. In verse 20, look at verse 20, he jumps to it and says, but that is not the way you learn Christ. And there's this amazing, uh, let me just read to you, assuming that you have heard about him. You put off the old self, and you put on the new self. You see that in verse 22 and then verse 24, that phrase. I want you to have a category for that, along with other phrases that are very similar to that. So you'll see this in the New Testament. You'll see this in the Gospels, Paul's writing, all throughout the New Testament. This put off, put on. Turn from, turn to. Repent, believe. Darkness, light. Dead, alive. Alienated, adopted. Foreigner, family. What's the point of all those metaphors? That there's this sharp contrast between what once was the case outside of Christ and what is the case now that you are in Christ. This sharp contrast between all these metaphors really reveal how we actually should be living. It is such a sharp contrast, it is as if you were dead and now you're alive. You were in utter darkness and now you're in the light. You were uh, uh, alienated and now you've been adopted. That's how stark the contrast is of being, having life in Christ outside of Christ. Look at verses 25 to 32. That, that really is what Paul is doing here. He's, he's contrasting and comparing those two stark lifestyles. And I love how Paul, if you've been with us these several weeks... Paul goes from these amazing, amazing, theologically lofty ideals, right, of this new humanity in Christ, this amazing work that Christ done, that that the plan of God from the ages, and then in a heartbeat, comes down to the nitty-gritty of human living right here. So he talks about telling the truth, controlling our anger, honesty at work, kindness of speech, forgiveness, forbearance. You see that the Christian life is not one without the other. It can be really easy, especially if you like reading books. Christianity's got tons of books involved in it. It can be really easy to like the really lofty theological aspects of Christianity. And particularly if you're like me, if you're a nerd and you like thinking about things, you like that. You've got 2,000 years of developed theology and history. But what I love about a local church is you cannot live there if you're going to be in a local church, can you? Because in a local church, it's about the nitty-gritty details of our lives. And so you need, actually, great truths need to be lived out. But at the same time, the way we live our lives have to be rooted in something much bigger than our own perspectives. Our way we live have to be rooted in these great fundamental truths. It's not one or the other. Our discipleship needs both. And so that's why we put a high emphasis on the reading and understanding of the Word of God, but also to put you in like a growth group. To put you in life on life with other people. Because Christianity is not meant to be either or. It's meant to be and also. And we see that in Paul's writing. He goes from these lofty truths right down to just being honest and loving people. And so look at verse 25. Having therefore, Paul writes, putting away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And then he gives a very interesting, I wouldn't have expected this reason for this command, for we are members one of another. What you probably expect is Paul to say, hey, speak truth because God is truth and launch again into some theological thing, but he actually says speak truth to one another because you are members of one another. And remember, what Paul is talking to is a community of people establishing themselves, being a unity. And the reason he says this is that falsehood divides, doesn't it? When you are being false, when you are deliberately speaking false things or or living false lives, you are putting a barrier between truth and reality, right? A truth in the community. And if you notice, verses 26 to 31, all of those are warnings about a lifestyle that destroys community compared with a lifestyle that builds community. And so that's what we have here, all of these things. So anger divides the community. Selfishness divides a community, that, that motivation to steal look at verse 28. I mean, the, the thief literally divides a community because he divides a person from their property or their finances, right? Corrupt speech, verse 29 divides a community because you force people to, to make, take mental sides for or against one another. And so Paul says, this, these things should not exist in this new community. You are to be one. But notice as well in those verses 25 to 32 gospel change is not simply not doing the bad thing anymore if you notice carefully paul actually says the opposite of the behavior is now expected of those so the person who spoke lies now only speaks truth he writes the one who steals now he actually works and what did paul say so that he can have something to give away right so the person who is using corrupted speech now uses their speech to build others up he says Bitterness is replaced with tenderness. Wrath and anger is given way to forgiveness and kindness. Paul is saying that is the gospel. It's not that we just want to take you get rid of the bad habits. We want to see the fruit of the gospel happening in your lives. And that's what was happening in the Ephesians life. And that's what's happening in the lives of you here at the church. Not perfectly, but it's happening. Now sometimes knowing why we do things is not that important. But sometimes, like this time, it is important. Because he just talked about how they lived, how they now live, but it's really important to know why. And that's where we're going to go into the middle of our passage. And I didn't explain this, but I'm kind of jumping around in Ephesians just the way Paul wrote this. So he talked about how you once lived, now how you live. Now we're going to look at why you once lived that way. And that's back to verse 17 and 19. And, and here's the thing. Most, all people, no one gets up, nobody wants to live lives like verses 17 to 19 describes, right? Nobody gets up and says, hey, you know, here's a good idea. I think I'll just crash my life in a ditch. Nobody wakes up and says, you know, I'm going to sabotage all my friendships and relationships. Yeah, I'm going to gossip, and I'm going to sow seeds of discord, Nobody says, I want to torpedo my life, so I think I'm going to have a divorce or embezzle funds from the office or or some other way to just self-destruct my life. Nobody wakes up thinking that. So the question we really have to grapple with, if that's the case, then why does that happen so often around us? Why do we see lives crashing in a ditch? Why do we see them being sunk like a torpedo hitting a battleship? Well, that's what Paul gets to here. And it's two little words in verse 22. At the very end of verse 22, deceitful desires. So let me read the verse. It says, put off your old self, your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. And it's corrupt, how? Through deceitful desires. Notice Paul did not say these are evil desires, right? He could have said that. There's words for that in the Greek. He didn't say that they were wicked desires. There are words for that in the Greek. Now, the word he chose to use is a word that expresses the idea of fraud and treachery. It's actually, it actually can be defined as a pleasant illusion, an enticement. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 13 when he's telling the parable of the sower and warning people about the deceitfulness of riches. Well, that's interesting. So in what way is, our we- is wealth deceitful to us? How does wealth deceive us? Anyone want to take a stab at that? Buy happiness. Buying happiness, yep. What's another way wealth deceives us? Makes us, makes us proud of ourselves, yeah. What else? Good. How does wealth deceive us? We don't need God. Yeah, why don't we need God, though, when we, when we have wealth? We got our money. Because instead of needing security in God, what do we got security in? Our money. Wealth deceives us into thinking that we're okay, that we're, we're safe. Wealth makes us think everything's fine. And what Paul is saying here, this is the key. What Paul is saying, that before we were in Christ, we had no authoritative or objective way to judge even our own desires. You see, the desires we had, these deceitful desires, made us think that our desires were okay, that they were fine. But the reality was they weren't. We lived our lives in order to fulfill those desires, never once thinking that those desires could be wrong, never once thinking that those desires could betray us, because after all, they were our desires. Why would we do that to ourselves? Well, that's the definition of deceit, isn't it? So what Paul is saying, so before you submitted your lives to the rulership of Christ, the final court of arbitration in your life was just your own desires. And the Bible says in Jeremiah 17 that the heart is wicked and deceived. But because our desires are so often short-sighted and temporal, what we think we really want isn't the case after all. And apart from the new life that Christ brings, because our desires have often been corrupted, we've deceived ourselves. So we think the thing we want is actually going to bring us life, but we end up being betrayed by them. But since our, as Paul said in verse 17 and 18, since our rational, emotional faculties are darkened and futile, we didn't even realize we were doing this to ourselves. Now, now let me illustrate this very heavy point, which you're going to see all through the New Testament in a kind of a lighthearted way. Kids and Christmas gifts. Um, This is easy because with kids, the desires of their hearts are very tangible and quantifiable, aren't they? Right? Uh, Especially at Christmas time, we see this kind of thing. Now, the translation work I want you to do is to recognize, although different in degree and situation, it's the same kind of desires in your heart that children have when it comes to Christmas time and toys. Different in degree, but the same kind of desire. Here I go. Dad, if you just get me this one uh, G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu action trip, I won't ask for anything else in my life. Right? Or, Dad, if you get me this particular thing, the Star Wars Battleship Lego thing, I won't need anything else. My life will be complete. Right? You have all heard that. Now, what we see happening in kids is, Dad, my life revolves around this thing. If I had this, I would be happy. Everyone has this, and they're happy. If I had it, I would be happy. If you love me, you'd get me this, right? Now, we see that all the time. But what's going on? It's the same kind of thing that we adults do, except we abstract the concept. It's no longer the G.I. Joe doll with the kung fu grip. It's no longer the strawberry shortcake model house thing. It's more abstract concepts like respect power, feeling a sense of security, a sense of control over my life. It's no longer material objects I can wrap my hands around maybe, but it's things like the ideal relationship or the dream job, the ideal vacation. But you see, it's only different in degree and situation. It's the same kind of desire that says, if only I had this, my life would be complete it's the same dynamic that's going on that Paul says, this is the deceitful desires that have led us down these paths of futility. So what I like to ask my kids, they gonna go, hey, remember that thing that two years ago, life would end if you didn't have that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was that? I don't know. That was two years ago. Oh, okay. So now life would end if you don't get this. Well, yeah, totally. I don't really need that. But every, now I've done it enough times where they already know the shtick. And what I keep telling them is, you were not made for these things. Don't invest your whole joy in them. Now, we see that so clearly with kids and their toys, but we don't so clearly see that with our own grown-up desires now. But it's the same kind of dynamic. I want you to go with me to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. And I realize that we are running, we are pretty much running out of time, but I want to just end with this point here. Oh! It's too good. Can I get 10 more minutes? Please say yes. Yes, good. Okay. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. I want you to see this. It's the very end. It's when Satan is tempting the woman. guy, Family, you'll never get out of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 because it describes it so well. So here it is, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise... Is there something wrong with desiring to be wise? Answers, no, no, it's not wrong at all. We want wisdom. There's a whole section in the middle of the Bible called wisdom literature. God wants his people to have wisdom. Then why, what was the problem here? Eve just wanted to be wise. Because she wanted a wisdom apart from God's design. She wanted a wisdom separate from the wisdom that God would give her. And in a similar way, in a similar manner, it's not about the individual desires we have, but that we so often want them apart from God's design for our lives. And they deceive us, and they betray us like Eve was betrayed. So now what's the solution, right? What's the solution? If that's the reality that that our desires are deceiving us, what's the solution? Paul gets that back in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 23 to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. It says that exactly the same phrase in Romans chapter two, verse 12. Do not be conformed to this world, this age system with its values and desires, its loyalties and allegiances. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path if you've been in the church a while, you've heard that verse. See, what the psalmist is saying is your word helps us see reality. Your word is the way we understand the reality around us. Now, it's popular in our culture, in the Christian church today, to look at the Bible as a handbook, right, of instructions. You've heard the acronym, Bible Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth, right? We've heard that. That's kind of helpful, but what happens when you've come across a situation in life that there's no analog in your concordance, right? There's no uh, nuclear disarmament here. God has nothing to say about nuclear destruction. There's nothing on genetic coding, so God has nothing to say about genetics, right? Is that what we're going to conclude? But so often people feel like God has nothing to say because it's not in the concordance because they look at the Bible as just like an encyclopedia. But John Calvin, the reformer, I think he nailed it. He says the Bible is not instructions for living, The Bible is more spectacles by which you put on and see the world through. The Bible is the way we perceive all of reality. So as you read and you study and memorize and expose yourself and marinate your soul in these truths, the process of renewal begins to take place. And then this is what happens. Psalm 37, four. Delight yourselves in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. But you need to read this verse differently, right? He's not saying, delight yourself in the Lord and you get whatever you want. That's the problem in the first place. What the psalmist is saying is when you delight yourself in the Lord... He gives you the actual correct desires that you need to have in your life so that you make the choices you need to make according to his plan so that you prosper and get renewed and not deceived. That's what the psalmist is saying. That when you delight yourself in God's word and who he is and his character, he gives you the desires in your heart. And so here's the process. As your mind is being renewed because of the word of God, he is filling your heart with those desires. And now you live out your life in accordance to his plan and wisdom in the choices you make every day. And that's what Paul is saying. This work has happened to you in Christ, right? This is not separate from Christ. We're not talking about a moralism here. Christ is the wisdom we are pursuing. He says this happens in Christ. Your life begins to be transformed and you're no longer this way. And so let's land this thing here because we're already running late. Our hope is not just in knowing more information, although that is important. It It is not less than that. It is so much more than that, and it is Jesus Christ. When Paul says you are one new humanity, when he's talking about these great truths, you notice he always has the preposition in Christ. So as we renew our mind, as we memorize God's word, as we marinate our souls in it, It is not just to have more information, it is to understand and perceive and conceive the person of Christ. Because when we fail, and we will fail, to live out what we just read, He never did. And His righteousness and obedience is accounted to us. And that's our hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the rich treasure that is Your Word. We thank You that your Holy Spirit was just working and preparing our hearts to hear this message as we were singing some of these songs. Would you continue to transform us? Lord, we are, uh, although renewed by your Spirit day by day, we still struggle with wanting to know and our desires and wanting to be well-pleasing to you. But we rest that Christ perfectly fulfilled the desires of his Father and that we have his righteousness. Would you help us to live in light of that? In his name we pray, amen.